right. So uh, um, I'm going to give you guys a little bit of a background as far as um, what we're going to be. Is my thing up? It's in there. All right. So the Apostle John, the author of, the, of this letter, he was famous for being called the disciple that Jesus loved. There was a pretty unique relationship between John and Jesus. You see that all through the ministry of Jesus. You see that John was one of three key people that Jesus always kept with him. In, when he was praying or when he was go, if he told everybody else to kind of go do something else, but he kept a small group of people with him, John was always one of those three. So much so that when Jesus died on the cross, he gave John his mom. He's like, all right, I'm leaving. You're taking care of my mom. So there's a pretty special relationship. It's not just your average, oh, he's just part of the disciples. But what's special is John also had an extremely deep love for Jesus. And we have to keep that in mind. Whenever you read a letter that John wrote, whether it be the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd, or Revelation, John always is trying to connect you with a relationship with Jesus. His heart is, I just want you to be in love with Jesus. That's always John's, even though the minor things he always adjusts or talks about in the letters, his main focus is always like John's like, I just want to love Jesus. It's like, you know, as evangelists you see on TV, the says, I just want everybody to love Jesus. I just want everybody to love Jesus. That's John, all right, because of his relationship. He knew Jesus so well. So when you love somebody and you love them so much, you love them without holding back, there you are completely sold out, all right, then your love for that person naturally develops and creates in you a hate anything that stands in between your connection with that person. If I, um, I'll use my wife as an example, Nicole and I, I love her with all my heart. Anything that I see that tries to come in between our connection or damage it or push us further apart automatically evokes a err <laughs> on me because, not because I'm filled with hate, but because my love for her demands a dislike of anything that tries to disrupt it. All right? So, let me use this as an example. If you're on a date, now if you're married, you'll be on a date with your husband or your wife. If you're not married, it's your boyfriend or your girlfriend or whoever. But you're, you imagine yourself, you're out on a date. And you're really trying to get to know this other person. And you're there and your entire goal is just to enjoy being with this person and you're all of a sudden you're sitting there whether it's up on a mountain with a picnic or pizza hut or fancy restaurant wherever and all of a sudden this random individual walks up to the table and just gets in the middle of you and is starting to make a bunch of noise and just trying to disrupt the whole thing and you're like what the heck is going on now you can almost have pity for the person. Say, okay, just, just please leave. But to make it worse, he's not doing it on accident. This person came there with the goal that he wants to ruin your little thing. He is not going to be happy until he messes up your connection with the other person that you're trying to connect with. That is his purpose for being there. He doesn't just happen to see, oh, they're sitting there. I think I'm going to go make a mess. He's like, I knew they were going to be there. So I'm going to go purposely make a mess. I'm going to go break that up. 
starts invoking certain feelings, at least when I start thinking about it, I'm like, yeah, I could start feeling a certain way about this. It's, I, I wouldn't be happy about it. I wouldn't be too enthusiastic about it. That is exactly what's going on in First John. John is writing a letter to a church, and there was this similar thing going on. You see, John's job as an apostle, um, remember, they didn't have the Bible yet at this stage. They had the Old Testament, but a lot of the New Testament was still being written, still being put together, so they don't have what we have today where you open the Bible, somebody says, oh, this is what Jesus is like, and this is what God is like, and you can say, oh, I'm not so sure, so you go... You grab the Bible and you're like, okay, this is what Jesus taught. No, what you're saying and what I'm reading here is not the same thing. So I don't know what you're saying. It's different. So the church was at a diff- very crucial time where the, not just the 12 apostles that were with Jesus, but specifically them, because they were chosen by Jesus for that purpose, um, they were to teach what Jesus taught them. They were to give witness to what they saw because they were with Jesus during his ministry. And there was a crucial time for the church where a foundation was being laid for who is Jesus, what he did, what he taught, what's different. So it was a very crucial time. All right? So one of the things that they taught, and John specifically taught a lot, is God was not only bringing a different change of rules, he, he was coming to invite us into, uh, into a deep, intimate relationship. Because one of the things that Jesus came when he died on the cross is he took everything away. Everything that separated us from him. Tore the veil and he said, now it's me and you, it's face to face. It's us sitting somewhere, having a date, getting to know each other, other, chatting, hanging out. It's me and you. And that's what we were created for. And the church was moving into this. You can kind of see how this whole love story kind of develops where it's God's so happy that after how many every year is finally Jesus is there and everybody's getting together and it's a big old reunion since things got messed up in the Garden of Eden and everything is happy and all of a sudden um, there's this annoying person called the devil and he's trying to mess up. He's coming and dancing on the table where we're trying to set a candlelight and loving Jesus. All right? So that is kind of... just to, I'm saying this just so you can kind of picture what the environment is in the, in, the, in the atmosphere that John is writing into. You see, um, this is how, this is what the devil was doing. This is how he was doing it. He was using false teachers. And what these teachers started doing um, is they were throwing lies about who Jesus is. The fancy word for it is uh, Gnostics. I know Pastor Ken and Pastor John and everybody's kind of already talked about it, so I'm not going to go too deep into it. But the main things that was being addressed in First John is what these people were teaching. They say, hey, anything physical, anything fleshly is evil. There's no way it can be good. Anything spiritual is awesome. It's good. It's the only thing that's acceptable to God is spiritual. Then they took it further. They said, um, because of this, Jesus didn't really come as a man. He can't. He's God. He's good. How can he, how can he be in flesh? This is, what, this is the lies they were teaching. And then they said, so if he didn't really come as a man, he didn't really die on the cross. If he didn't really die on the cross, he didn't really raise from the dead. And you guys can see the problem with that. That is the foundation of what we believe. Jesus came as a man, depended on God, died for our sins on the cross, and God the Father rose him up and rose up with him so we can have a relationship and so that our sins can be forgiven. So these false teachers were coming in, and they were teaching all these different 
weird theologies. And this is what John was writing specifically against. And he specifically addresses um, this thing going on in verses 1 John 2, 15 to 17 is where we're going to kind of park today. Um, and but this is specifically what John was reading into and what he was uh, trying to address. And I say that, and the reason I took the time to create the, what really was going on it's because it's really easy, if you just read the verse, to think John is saying something else than what he really is saying, what he really is talking about. So I just wanted to set that out and everybody can uh, understand what John's heart is, what his motivation is, and what is going on. All right, so if we can go to the next slide, it should be... All right, so this is First John 2.15. That's the first one. I'll just read off the screen. It says, do not love the world, nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, it almost sounds contradictory. It almost sounds, what do you mean don't love the world? Didn't this same guy write in the Gospel of John, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son, and now he's saying, if I don't love, if I love the world, the love of the Father is not in me? What, what's going on? Okay, so... Here's the thing. John's not actually talking about the created world there. He's not talking about the pretty mountains and, the, and us physical things. He's not talking about that. When you go, and it should be on the next slide actually. We slide that. There we go. That word government means government. Sorry. If you look at the, in the Strong's Corncadence, that word that John used to say world, it actually means a government or a constitution. That's what he was talking about. So before you get crazy, he wasn't saying go rebel against your earthly government like the United States government or the British government. It's not a government he was talking about either. He was talking about the government, that guy dancing on the table trying to disrupt the relationship. He was talking about that government, the government that is aimed at trying to disrupt the relationship. So that is what he is saying. He is saying, <coughs> if... Uh, I lost my place on my page. Okay. So, yeah, as I said, original words means government or constitution. So, let me skip forward here. John is bringing two worlds into contrast. All right? He's going to highlight the bad government in the next couple of verses we're going to see. And in the, right at the end, he kind of highlights the good government, the kingdom. So, in uh, first he says, do not love the things of the government of the world or the devil. And then he lists three ways of thinking that are rooted in the, in the devil's government. All right? He lists, and I'm going to list them quickly. I think that might be on the next slide, actually. No? All right. So I'm jumping ahead on the slide. You can leave that pulled up. But he lists three things quickly. He says, uh, it's lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life which you can see up there, he talks about. So those are the three thought patterns. He says, listen, don't love the government that is trying to disrupt your relationship with Jesus. There's this government out there, and if you struggle with the word government, you can replace that with kingdom just for your thinking too. He's talking about the push by the devil, if you will, to disrupt their new relationship that we have in Jesus. He says, don't love what is of that government, is what he's saying in that first verse. And then he says, these are three ways of thinking that this is how you can identify this government. There are three things, three thought 
ways of thought, three core values or whatever you want to call them that you can identify this government with. And it's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now you will notice that the first two, he uses the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes. That word lust. And that will be on the next slide. That word lust is very interesting. It means the, it's the desire to do something. And if you take it further, the word desire, you can go to the next slide again, is also interesting. If you go to the root word of what desire means, it means the of sire, the father. So desire is of the father. Now what he's not saying, and what I'm not saying, is that all desires come of the father. That's not what I'm saying. That father is not talking about God. He's talking about whomever you choose as Lord will influence your desires. All right? It's like, if I can use my previous analogy, if I'm sitting at the table trying to have a nice date with my wife and I let this person stay there and influence and disrupt everything and I turn my attention, all of a sudden my desire for getting to know my wife gets influenced and it becomes something else. There's See what I mean? Like it, it, it doesn't force me to think a certain way, but when I entertain it, it changes and it influences my desire. Which is not a good thing. Right? So, I can say this again. I am not saying that every desire you get is from God. Okay? That is not what I'm saying. I'm be very clear, otherwise people are going to send nasty emails. It's not... And luckily, Pastor John will get them, not me. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so let me put it this way too. Jesus shows up, right? And he starts preaching his ministry. And what does he start preaching? He says, um, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's, That's what he starts his whole grand thing out with. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, a kingdom is a king's domain. In other words, it is the area or space of influence, geographical or however you want to look at it. It is the place where the will of the king has influence over how things are done. What the king wills happens. So if he says, I want this to be called that, then that's what it gets called because the domain is the king's domain, kingdom. So what Jesus was saying is like, hey, my kingdom is coming, the kingdom of heaven. We see that exactly where he, teaches, where he teaches the disciples how to pray. How did he teach them? Our Father who is in heaven, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. All right? So you have this thing where he's saying, my domain is expanding. And you, you can almost think, like, what do you mean? Like, wasn't he always God? Yes, he was always God. And yes, he was always in control of everything. But remember in the Garden of Eden, we kind of gave away authority that he gave to us because we listened to the wrong. I'll get to that. <laughs> All right. So that's what the kingdom is. Now in Romans, next slide. Hopefully I didn't jump too far. Oh, okay. One more. All right. One more. There we go. So in Romans fourteen seventeen. Paul defines for us what the kingdom is. He says, The kingdom is not meat or drink, but it's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. 
That in the Holy Spirit is important. Why? Another way of saying this is, if I can paraphrase, where the Holy Spirit is Lord, righteousness, peace, and joy is the result. Okay? So, you can see why John is addressing this other kingdom or this other government, saying, do not love this other government, because what if you start entertaining that and you start letting that influence your desires, then you're not going to have righteousness, peace, and joy. You're going to have the exact opposite, which in this case he was talking about lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Okay? So, the kingdom is found in the Holy Spirit. Okay, so let me get here. I run ahead of myself on my own notes. Okay, so the first one, I'm going to stop and I'm going to a little bit unpack the three points that John highlighted. The first one is lust of the flesh. Let's go to the next, the next slide. Okay, two kingdoms like I just spoke of. Okay, let's jump one more slide. There we go. Sorry. I, I preach here. I don't preach here. It's, I'm trying though. I am trying. All right, so the last of the flesh. If you break that down, it talks about, if you go to the strongest coordinates, it means basically an animal desire is what it's saying. It talks about your bare, I need to eat, I need to sleep, I need to be warm, your bare basic survival instincts is what it's talking about. No, those are not bad on their own. But if you live just giving in to your animal desires, what you find is you'll have a life You'll seek pleasure and you'll avoid pain. That'll be my life's motto. If it's fun, I'll do it. If it hurts, I leave it alone. Right? So John is saying, in the, sorry, not John, Paul said in Romans 14, 17, like in that area, he said, the kingdom is not meat or drink, but, and then he keeps on going on. That meat or drink, it's basically saying, hey, the kingdom is not um." Let me not try and break down my own point I'm going to try and make. The kingdom is not uh, cars. It's not having fun experiences. It's not um, fulfilling your desires. It's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So when he talks about it's not meat and drink, he's saying if you live in the kingdom, you do not seek first meat or drink. Seeking to fulfill your desires, seeking after pleasure is not your number one concern. All right? Because he said, if you seek first my kingdom, these things will be added to you. Right? I mean, let's, let, let's just be honest. Our desire for certain pleasures is a God-given desire. Right? It's God-given. Within the right context, it's, it's a good thing. But if I seek that before I seek the one who gave it, it's... Uh, it's going to end badly for me. For instance, it's, uh, I, uh, if I, give my, I want my little girl to learn to shoot, right? It's, it's fun. And she's only five years old, so she doesn't do much of it yet. But uh, if she gets hold of my hunting rifle without me there, and it's loaded, issues, right? Not good. But if I'm there, it can be fun. That's kind of what he's saying. He says, Listen, I gave you desires. I, I, I want you to have, to, to, to have fun. There's pleasures. 
And uh, if you don't believe me that God created you for pleasure, I have a very nice verse that's going to convince you, or at least make you mad at me. Um, <laughs> jump to the next one. This is in Psalms, and this is in the Passion Translation. And I love the Passion Translation. And I'll read it out loud. You always reveal to me the way of resurrection life, the path that brings me to overflowing joys, the exquisite and eternal pleasures of gazing upon your face. If you read it in a different translation, it'll say that um, at, the right, at your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. That's what different translations would say. Now, who's at the right hand of the Father? So another way you can say this is, in Jesus, there are pleasures forevermore. What's the key? I'm not seeking after the pleasure. I'm seeking after Jesus. And when I seek after Jesus, then the pleasure comes. All right? They say it so wonderfully here. It's the joy of gazing upon your face. And I'm just going to... This is on my notes. But I heard, I heard somebody say one time, and it's such a beautiful picture. He says, if you can imagine you're, and you're in heaven... And you see the face of Jesus, and your only response you really can do is you just worship. You don't have another choice. You just, wow, Jesus. And then the moment you think you, uh, you got used to that one little bit of him that you see, okay, this is Jesus, then he just takes his face and he so slightly turns it. And all of a sudden you see a whole new part of him, and then you can't help but just worship again because you see this new. And it's this kind of... Holy Spirit just threw that in there. Take that for who that was. But it gets me excited to think about that. All right, so the second point he was listing out, the second way that you can know that, uh, we can go to the next slide, the second way that you can know that it's the thought that's of the, the wrong kingdom, if I can use that terminology, is lust of the eyes. Now, those word eyes can mean two things. It can mean your literal eyes, or when it's used as a metaphor, according to the Strong's Concordance, my English is leaving, um, it means knowledge. Now, John was using it as a metaphor in this point. We know he was using it as a metaphor in this point because the previous point talked about the physical desire. So he's not going to repeat himself twice. So in this section, he's talking about... Um, Eyes being knowledge. All right? So the lust of the eyes. There are three verses. I just quickly, I'm not going to read them. If you're taking notes or if you want them as reference, you can, they'll be on the next slide. Um, Psalms 111 verse 10, Proverbs 9, 10, and Proverbs 1, 7. And all three of those verses, it, it either starts with or talks about that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In, uh, let me say it this way. So, if lust of the eyes is talking about knowledge, then what, it, what it's not saying is don't seek knowledge. It's not saying that um, any knowledge you seek is a bad thing and you just need to check your brain at, at the door when you walk into the church because if it doesn't make sense, it's good. That's not what he's saying. Some, sometimes we think that, but that's not what he's saying. You see, knowledge apart from Jesus is just knowledge. When you have knowledge with Jesus, it becomes wisdom. All right? If you don't, a good example of to see that God really wants 
to bless us with knowledge. He wants us to have it. If you look at Solomon, Solomon got a blank check from God, basically. He says, ask me whatever you want, it's yours. What did he ask for? He asked for wisdom. And if you look at the whole story of, of Solomon, he didn't end up too well. But when he stayed close to his relationship with God, he flourished, Israel flourished. When he started deviating a little bit, doing things he shouldn't be doing, you know, entertaining other false gods and getting married way too much. Um, if you look throughout the, the history, stuff started happening badly. And what God is saying is he says, hey, listen, knowledge is a powerful tool. It's something that is useful, but it is extremely powerful. And I will give you all the knowledge in the world that you want, but I'm going to give it to you as you can handle it. If you go, uh, um, we can go to the next verse. If you go to, uh, um, it'll be uh, in John uh, 16, 12 to 13. You can read that. This is where this Jesus is about to leave and he's talking to his disciples and he says, listen, there's a ton of stuff I want to tell you still. There is so much I want knowledge I want to give you, but you cannot bear them yet. And you just see the heart of the Father where he's saying, if I give you this thing now, you're going to get hurt. You'll get it, but you'll get it when you're ready. It's like my little girl with the hunting rifle. She'll get to shoot her own gun when she's ready for it. She'll get there. It's just not yet. So when it's talking about lust of the eyes, it's talking about you have a lifestyle where you're seeking knowledge outside of God. I don't need to give too many examples of that. We can see it all around us. It's everywhere. It's uh, no matter which industry you go from. It is saying, I guess one example could be if a doctor stitches somebody up and says, look what I did. I did that. I fixed that person right up. And it's not, God's actually standing next to him and is like, who do you think gave you the hands to do those stitches? And who do you think gave you the knowledge to have a brain to understand how everything goes together? And who taught you how everything goes together in the first place? So do not entertain thoughts like that. Do not entertain knowledge apart from God because it will not lead you to wisdom. The third point he was talking about. Go to the next slide. Please. Thank you. He said, boastful pride of life. Now that literally means empty braggart talk is what that boastful pride means. Empty braggart talk. And that word life there it's talking about the time period of earth, right? And if, if, you go, if you go to the scripture and you, that's where that little reference is at the bottom, that strong concordance at the bottom, it says this is what the words mean. Um, so what is it saying is, if I live a life where it's about me, it's about look what I can do, look what company I have built up, look what... Uh, um, my life is all about. Another way we always like to say it is we say whoever with the most toys wins in the end. It's all about me. I am the center of my own universe. That is the thought pattern that John is highlighting. He's saying if you see that, don't love that thing. It is not of the right kingdom. What did Jesus say about it? He said in Matthew six nineteen to 20, I should have that on there too. There we go. He 
said, uh, store up treasures in heaven. I'm not going to read it all. It's a lot, but you guys can read it if you want. He says, store up treasures in heaven. Don't try and store up treasures for yourself down here. Store it up in heaven. And then he goes on, and then he says, from Matthew 6, 21, all the way to 33, where he gives you, basically gives you a promise. He says, all these other things that you'd want to store up for yourself, I'll give them all to you. I'll give them to you. But seek first my kingdom. Seek first me, and then, if I'm Lord in your life, your desires fulfilled will have righteousness, peace, and joy as a result. If you seek a desire fulfilled outside of your relationship with God, it's not going to have that result. It's probably going to end badly for yourself or for people around you. And somebody's going to end up getting hurt. So now we get to my favorite part of the three verses that we were going to look at. We're going to look at verse 17. You can skip to the next one. All right. And what did he say in 17? After he took the first two verses and he says, Don't love the world because if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. And this is how you know the things are of the world. If you have, see anything with lust of the, of the flesh... And if you see anything with lust of the eyes, and if you see anything with a boastful pride of life, those are the things that will influence your desires for the wrong thing, and they're going to take you down the path that will take you away from God, and it's not what you were created for. And then he goes, and he's at verse 17, and he says, And the world, that word world, remember, is talking about the that government or constitution that is trying to influence. He's not talking about here when the actual world ends and Jesus is coming back, even though that is going to happen. He says, and the world is passing away, and the lust of it. So what is he saying? He is saying, listen, this kingdom, if I can use that same knowledge, basically, this kingdom that has been on the planet since the Garden of Eden, that has had its sole purpose to disrupt and distort and kill, steal, and destroy, this kingdom is passing away. It is leaving. To understand that fully, what we need to do is we need to go to Isaiah 9, verse 7, and it should be on the next slide. This is a prophecy given about, uh, about Jesus. I didn't put the whole verse on there. I just put the part I'm trying to highlight. Um, but it, the part I'm trying to highlight is, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Right? It's a, pretty, it's a pretty popular verse. We all know it. He's talking of Isaiah giving a prophecy about Jesus and you know, you, a son will be giving to you. And this, this is this part in Scripture where you see that. All right? So he says, To the increase of his government, talking about the government of Jesus, which is the kingdom of heaven, righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, there is no end. It is ever increasing. It doesn't stop It doesn't say, oh, I've covered enough ground. I think I'll just draw my line right here. Last time I was here preaching, I shared with you guys too, there's that verse where they say, um, you know, when the the enemy comes in like a flood and, you know, the Lord will raise up a standard. And I said a lot of times we, it's actually taught wrong. It says when the enemy comes in like a flood, the Lord will raise up a standard, right? You know that verse where it says, um, the, the, where he talks about people, by, about Peter, where Peter has the revelation, and he says, hey, who am I? And Peter says, you're the son of God. 
you are the Messiah. And then he says, oh, the Father gave you this revelation. And then he says, in talks, talking about the revelation, he says, and the gates of hell will not triumph against it. He wasn't talking about Peter. He was talking about the revelation that Jesus is the Messiah. The gates of hell. Now, you don't move gates. Gates are stationary. So if the gates do not triumph over the revelation of who Jesus is, the ever-increasing kingdom, it means the kingdom moves until it stands in front of the gates and it goes doof, 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 and the gates fall down. All right? The gates aren't moving. We're moving. All right? In Matthew twenty-eight eighteen, Jesus said that all authority in heaven and in earth has been given to me. What are you saying? I'm going to paraphrase a little bit. He says, hey, my kingdom is here. It came with me. We're not stopping. We're going to keep on going. We're going to keep on expanding and expanding. And we're going to get bigger and 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 bigger. Until, what's the Bible say? Until the, the knowledge of the glory of God will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. Right? So much for people that have a theology that the world's getting worse, right? Sorry, I couldn't resist. I had to throw that in there. <laughs> had to do that. <clears throat> so, Jesus is basically saying, hey, you have a choice. My kingdom's ever increasing. But I'm not going to force myself upon you. My kingdom's here, and you have the bad kingdom. And you can choose. You choose me, I will give you eternal life. Okay? In verse 17 there it says... Um, Oh, sorry, previous one, go back a little bit. One more. There. But he who does the will of the Father abides forever. Abides forever, he's talking about eternal life. Like this, Jesus said, choose my kingdom and you will have eternal life. Choose the other kingdom. Bummer. It's like, it's be like uh, equivalent, I guess here you'd say, your dad wants to buy you a brand new truck, whatever, you, whether you like Ford, Dodge, or Chevy, or whatever, and he wants to buy the best one on the market, custom, whatever, he basically says, I'll write a blank, blank check, and you build it, and you kind of look at him and say, no, Dad, I think I'm going to go and get that beat-up bicycle that's been run over five times there, it's rusted on the corner, you know, the one if every time you step on it, it cuts your foot open, I think I'm going to take that, <laughs> keep your truck. I mean, it's, the gap's actually bigger than that, but it kind of makes you realize you're saying don't don't be he said that's not a bad choice that's the spirit of stupid <laughs> that's that's what that is sorry i don't think i'm supposed to say that from the pulpit <laughs> all right so what is everlasting life we jump forward again please two slides i believe yeah, that one. Keep that one. Right before Jesus gets crucified and written by the same guy in the Gospel of John, Jesus is praying for himself, and then he goes and he's praying for his disciples. And when he prays for himself, he has this really interesting statement he makes in verse 17, um, chapter 17, verse 3, where he says, And this is eternal life. Oh, I made a mistake there. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is a continuation of your current relationship with God. If you had this idea 
that heaven is just a place where Jesus hangs out? No. Heaven is heaven because Jesus is there. If you take Jesus out of the equation, it's not heaven anymore. His presence is what makes it heaven. So, if knowing Jesus is heaven, that means that I'm not just going to start over one day when I die and all of a sudden I'll land in front of heaven and say, right, what do we do now? I land there and God's like, right, now you get to know me fully. And you're going to spend eternity getting to know me. And you're just going to scratch the surface. It takes more than eternity to even to get to know who he fully is. So you can see why it's so important why John writes, do not love the world. Do not love this kingdom that has its sole purpose to try and disrupt the relationship that you were made for, that the God himself who made everything decided, I want this so much, I'm going to come down as a man, give up all my glory, give up everything, and to come as a man dependent on God, and I'm going to die, even though I didn't do anything, so I can have this relationship. And then everything that is of me, I'm going to give to you. It's like, you know, I mean, we, we can't fathom it. We can't understand it. Do not love the kingdom that's sole purpose is to try and disrupt that relationship. Don't do it. If you do the will of the Father, you will abide forever. You know, another word that that love, that word love, where it says do not love the world, that word love also means entertain. You're like, no, I don't. I don't love it. I just, whenever I hear God calling, I just, God, that is a football game on. It's like, that's okay. I made football. <laughs> I invented the people that invented it. I love it. I think God cheers football games or whatever sport you like or hunting. or and I love hunting. Let me just say that out there. But if you're like, oh, I want to go do this. And you hear this thing in the back of your mind and God's like, I want you to come spend some time. Come sit on my lap. Yeah, I'll do that after I go hunting. I don't love hunting more than I love God. But what do I do? I entertain. Hmm. I entertain something that disrupts. So if you jump to the last verse of the last slide on there, it's like God's posing a question. Which kingdom will you love? Choose. Simple choice. So you choose me first, you will have the best hunting trips in the world. I want you to have that. You will have the best... Put whatever desire you have in there that you can think, things that you want, things that, and it's not just material. It's, it's. I want, a, I want a healthy family. I want, I want, I want um, my kids to be happy. I want, put whatever you want in there. It's like God's saying, hey, if you seek these things as an end to themselves, you're not gonna, you're not gonna get them. It's just not the way it works. You seek me. In me. Is every desire and every pleasure you can ever think of that you were created for, find it in me.
There's a challenge I want to throw out to you today. If, uh, if you're sitting here and you feel like, Dad, I've never really understood the whole thing of there's different kingdoms and you kind of have to make a choice. You can't just float to life, show up on Sunday and be like, oh, I'm, I'm sure I'm good. I believe in Jesus. You're sitting there and you feel, and you, and you know it's you because right now you have a lump on your throat or something in your stomach is turning. I'm talking to you then. Um, and you realize, man, I kind of need to make a choice. Which kingdom am I going to love? All right. Then um, I want you to come up as, as we go through worship or whether you want to do it here or whether you want to do it out there in the office, I want you to come up and we'll pray for you for that. I also want to do another challenge. If you can sit there and you feel that, you're like, Dad, I love you and I love you more than anything, but I realize I've been entertaining. I've been entertaining lifestyles. I've been entertaining thoughts. I've been entertaining things that I find myself desiring and I put them ahead of you. And then they don't even fulfill. If, it, if something like that is coming up in your mind, you can think it's like, "Yeah, I, I really, I've been putting that ahead of God." I give you a time to, to uh, just repent of that. You see, the word repentance means changing the way you think. In other words, you're like, All "Right, Dad, I realize you need to be first, and then." You'll add. And obviously, if there's any anybody that needs any healing or anything I didn't mention, and you feel like you you want prayer for, or um, just 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 come up and, and we'll pray for you. I say whether you want to do it here, or whether you want to do it there. But I want to encourage you. I want to say if you hmm, when we worship now, we kind of transition into uh, the extra songs we're going to do and. Um, How do you think you'll sing when you're in heaven? I mean, pick, pick, picture this with me, right? Forget about the people. Imagine yourself standing. And God is in front of you. You and him. What are you going to do? Do you believe he's here today? When we worship, moving into this next thing, I want, I want to challenge you. Sing to him, not about him. Ah, Dad. Dad, I just ask that your presence would just fill this place. I ask that you would... Uh, mm. Show us who you are. Thank you, Dad.